Welcome to the Growth Gap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. In this episode, we chat with Amr Kronfel, a managing director at Warburg Pincus, one of the most well-known private equity institutions in the world. Founded in 1966, Warburg Pincus has raised 20 private equity funds, which have invested more than $97 billion in over 960 companies in more than 40 countries. Amr makes growth investments at the intersection of healthcare, technology, and consumer retail. We chat about what he looks for in a CEO, the value that Warburg provides to its portfolio companies, and the areas he is most focused on in the healthcare sector. We hope you enjoy the show. Amr, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a delight to chat with you today. As you know, I've met at least a couple of your portfolio company CEOs, and they speak highly of Warburg. And I was wondering, on the reverse, what is it that you look for in CEOs or founders that you decide to back? Thanks, and it's great to be here. I think first and foremost, we're looking for people that can attract great people around them that have a way of motivating and driving people. And I think almost all of the CEOs in our current portfolio have that characteristic. That's first and foremost. It's not an end of one that's going to go and achieve what you need to do in these things. The second is a maniacal focus around the end customer, whoever that is. We don't want CEOs that are kind of sitting in an ivory tower trying to figure something out. We want them out there feeling and understanding the market. I think the third characteristic is competitive nature, desire to win persistence, kind of all bucketed together, evidence of that in their past. A lot of our founders clearly, clearly have that, but we look for that as well in in some of our more professional managers as well. And then the fourth is good people, people that we think are high integrity, people that want to work with us, that are transparent, open about what's going on. These things are are rarely up and to the right. There's always difficult moments and you want someone who you you think you can sit across the table from and figure something out. I noticed you're a computer science grad from Princeton. There's another famous person out there who graduated from Princeton with a computer science degree by the name of Jeff Bezos. And and he actually had a similar path in that he went to Wall Street first. Curious if you ever thought about starting a business. It's a great question. I have many, many times in my career. And I think I've taken some of the classes that maybe Jeff did. He obviously had a uh, very different, much more successful trajectory than I will ever have. But what I would say is one of the reasons that I love what I do in private equity is it, it gives me a chance to be a part of that journey along others who have a lot of the skill set that I certainly don't as a private equity investor and others I think a private equity don't have, namely leadership at the scale that it is and the ability to, to manage and motivate people that come from a much wider diversity of backgrounds than you perhaps might find in the private equity industry. So that has scratched the itch to some degree. I'm also married to a very ambitious and very successful dermatologist who is in the process of starting two businesses concurrently. So in my spare time, I am recruited to be an entrepreneur, although she only gets me to do the boring mundane stuff. I don't get any of the glamour, but it's, it's been a lot of fun helping, helping Shireen and her own ambitions as well. Speaking of kind of the folks you get to work with, How is it that you or Warburg, I guess in tandem, provide value to your portfolio companies beyond uh, financial capital? Yeah, look, I think every private equity firm is somewhat similar in how they do this, but each has its own area of focus and differentiation. For us, if there was sort of three words to summarize it, we are really good at growth at scale. So any of the issues that are associated with helping a company, whatever its current scale is, really 
double down or triple down on growth, that's where we can really add value beyond our capital. Obviously, capital is sometimes a prerequisite to that, but simply giving a business a lot of money does not result in good ROI growth. And so there are many, many ways we do this. A couple of things I'd highlight is one, our shared services group, which consists of folks that have been in the trenches in almost every part of the functional areas that a growing company would need to think about, from the tech part of it, to the financial part of it, to the supply chain part of it, to the HR and work part of it, pricing, go to market. And what we do is we make that group, we call them our shared services group, as I was alluding to, we make that group available to our CEOs and management teams. We don't do this in a prescriptive, top-down way, where we kind of come in with a very rigid methodology. What we like to do is build alignment with our management team. So the, the term that I like to use is when, as, and if needed. So oftentimes when we come into the company, it may need some help on its pricing model, for example. So we would bring in our pricing person to help them early on and have a lot of alignment with management around that. Then as they kind of move through that, they might start to think about growth and wanting help recruiting salespeople. We would then help them with that and kind of iterate through it. And the needs are very different depending on the stage of company and where we may be in our own, in our own journey with them. So I, I think that's the second thing. And the last thing I'd say is because we are doing this repeatedly, both the individuals that are involved and, and us as a firm, there is a lot of pattern recognition. So uh, it's pattern recognition that exists within the particular sub-subspace that a company is in, but also pattern recognition across sectors and spaces. The, the sort of growing challenges, many of them tend to be the same for a plastics company as they are for a healthcare IT company, which is strange to say, but there is quite a bit of similarity. And we can help a lot with that, both as board members, but also just making connections to others in the portfolio. So those are some of the things. There's a much longer list to it than that, but maybe I'll pause there. Let's talk about the areas you specialize in because that probably pattern recognition plays into your specialization. So which areas are you most focused on? Yeah, I'm happy to address that. I'd say for us as Warburg, the word focus, we call it domain depth or, or thesis development. That's been a part of what we've been doing for at least the past 30 years. So we are big believers in this. I sit within our healthcare group broadly. Those are people that wake up every day and think about nothing else but healthcare. But even that, in our view and in in today's market, that's way too broad. So I actually spend a lot of my time fusing my academic background and how I grew up and also where, where I started my career with the firm looking at the intersection of technology and healthcare in this world that some people call healthcare IT or tech-enabled healthcare services, which is an awesome place to be. Healthcare is a big, big part of the U.S. economy. It is many years, if not decades, behind other parts of the economy. And it's a system that unfortunately is broken in many different ways. So technology is not the only solution, but it is going to be a big part of the solution. So I'd say at 10,000 feet, it's the injection of technology into every part of healthcare. That's still very broad. So we actually have a group of people that's a union of our tech team and our healthcare team that look at these these problems. Uh, And we subdivide ourselves into sort of more specific subsets of that. And what those are tend to evolve. Some of the ones that I'm particularly excited about in the moment to just give a flavor, one is the consumerization of healthcare. So the experience that you and I have as patients is probably a lot better today than it was 10 or 15 years ago. But I don't know what your experiences are visiting the doctor, but certainly not where it needs to be. And a big part of this is things that technology can help, the things like virtual check-in, where you don't have to go fill out a a clipboard to give a very simple example. The ability to have some visibility into your patient record and what's happening. The ability to go from one doctor to the other and have that not need to ask you a million questions that could have been answered where they didn't have seen your medical record. So 
There's a whole sort of set of things that's happening in healthcare IT around that theme. Um, the other one that's exciting is liberation of data in healthcare. So our system, for a lot of reasons, has been very siloed. If you go outside of the U.S., there's lots of regulations and other reasons that, that it's siloed. But a lot of things that happen, for example, in pharma, in um, research and development and clinical trials could be vastly improved to the benefit of, of society by just freeing up data. Likewise, and I think we saw this a little bit with COVID, which is accelerating many of these things, we need the ability to conduct and understand what's happening when new drugs are introduced in real time. And our system is really bad at that. So there's this whole field that's evolving called real-world data, which is simply put, taking the data that is being generated by every provider across the country and every payer across the country, and then trying to apply that to develop, develop evidence around whether something is working or not and garner insights on whether it's working or not. And it's, it's remarkable that we haven't done this in the past, but technology and a number of other things that are happening from the, on the regulatory side are finally allowing that to happen. It's creating a whole new ecosystem of companies, which is super, super exciting. And then the last thing I'll say, and then there's a lot more here and a lot of passion behind each of these things, is just efficiency. So as someone that's married to a doctor who comes from a family of doctors, I have experienced firsthand and understand firsthand what people call provider burnout. And it's a really unfortunate thing in this country. And it's just one example of how, in some ways, technology has created more inefficiency than not in the early days of healthcare when it should be doing the opposite. So we spend a lot of time around the category of workflow software for providers, for pharma companies, for payers, that's really helping to make their life easier, which should help reduce costs, should help improve quality should make patients happier and should make providers and researchers happier and more efficient. And there's a huge amount of opportunity around that category as well. It's interesting that third leg that you'd mentioned, you see private equity go into the provider space, primarily from aggregating, trying to roll up different practices. And I think now that's been played out and both sides, people understand what the economics are behind it. And, you know, we could probably go into depth about how each side kind of views that relationship. But I think your angle is a lot more interesting where you're trying to truly enable the provider in operating more efficiently and alleviating kind of a lot of these burdens around being a highly skilled doctor or surgeon. How do you think about in context of burnout, how do you view being able to kind of almost bring that doctor back to where they have kind of that energy level where they maybe first started out with? Let me um, answer it this way, RJ, because as Warburg, we also invest in provider groups, but we're very sensitive to what you just said, which is there is a history of provider roll-ups that were quite unsuccessful because they were truly roll-ups. They weren't kind of thinking about what is the benefit of being a larger entity? And how do we make sure that accrues a benefit to every constituent, the patient, the payer, the provider? And I'll give an example. So we're invested here in New York in a business called CityMD, which is, I think, a great example of the consumerization theme that I mentioned, a little bit less on the technology side, a little bit more on the more traditional services side. And then that company has more recently merged with another provider group, which is an excellent multi-specialty provider group called Summit Medical. And so what are the ways we address provider burnout? Just kind of hit your question through that entity. One of them is that in the case of CityMD, we have a model where the doctor is seeing the patient and then there is another group that is responsible for everything that happens for the patient outside of the patient visit. So the follow-up note, calling to make sure that they've been scheduled for whatever. If they're showing up at 5 p.m. and it's about to close, the provider can see them and then go home 
knowing that this other group is going to follow up. They call this aftercare. It's going to follow up with that patient and inform them if there's anything urgent in the results that have come back. That's an example of how you solve this problem, not only with technology, but also with processes. Likewise, there's another big theme in healthcare related to a move from the doctor getting paid for what they do versus getting paid for value. People call it the shifting of risk or value-based care. And this combined entity is very focused on helping providers move into that world, which is the only way that our healthcare system is going to become financially viable. We have to start paying for results, not just for volume. But that turns out to be really hard to do. And if you're a larger entity and you're focused on it, you can really help your providers make that bridge versus trying to take the single provider and have them figure out how do I take on risk for a population, for example. So there are a lot of technology businesses that are trying to solve that problem. And there are ways to solve it by creating more sophisticated, larger entities. And we come at it from both ways. And interestingly, being on both ends helps inform the others, so, so to speak. So a lot of what we've learned in Summit, CDMD has informed how we maybe think about provider workflow. And a lot of the best practices we learned from provider workflow are helping us, I think, be better partners to Summit CDMD. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned CDMD. At the beginning of the conversation, I mentioned there's at least a couple CEOs who I'd met. He's one of them and a very unassuming guy, one of the kindest guys. And I couldn't have been more impressed by him and his presence. And he seemed like he was truly mission-driven, whether it was for the company or for himself, meaning he was truly driven by this mission to help others. Do you find that in many of the CEOs that you back? Yeah, it's, it's great. And I'm smiling because Dr. Park is one of my favorite people. He's mm-hmm. uh, a really, really impressive and very humble entrepreneur. And I think he embodies one of the characteristics that I was referring to around what makes a great CEO, right? The ability to kind of motivate and lead people. There's no other way to do that than developing a sense of mission. Everybody wants to make money, but that's necessary, but not sufficient. And so if I think about the CEOs we've backed who have been the most successful, each of them has a way of parlaying what they do into a sense of mission and having that not be something that's sitting just on a piece of paper somewhere or on a whiteboard, but that's kind of reinforced day in and day out by the practices of the company. I think you mm-hmm. recently spoke to um, Nancy Ham as well, at right. WebPT, where this is how she was able to get that company to scale, get people motivated, and get them excited about showing up in this sort of somewhat niche but very important part of healthcare. Got it. Well, I'm eyeing the clock. We're coming up on time. And there's a couple of questions I'd like to ask at the end of these conversations. And this ties into what we were just talking about. Can you tell us about a leader that you really admire? It could be someone you've known more recently, someone in your past, but someone you really look to, they may be in business or not, but someone you really try to emulate. Yeah. So I'm going to cop out of this one to answer a little bit differently, which is one of my favorite things about what we do is we get to meet a lot of great leaders. And each of them has their spikes and each of them doesn't. What I would say, and maybe I'm going back to your question at the top of the hour as well, I think almost all, if not all, of the ones that have been really successful have a spike somewhere. And so I could go through a litany of people. So for example, maniacal product focus. We have a company called Modernizing Medicine, where it's two co-founders that built that company. And they will never, ever sacrifice on the product. It's a little bit of the um, Jeff Bezos kind of Amazon mentality. And that has led them to great success. The ability to create sense of mission. Number of companies where I've led in, as I've grown in my career, I've realized how important that is. But we had a CEO and founder who built a great business. This was when I started with Warburg in London, 
who used to sign his emails. Actually, it was a company in Poland, of all places, but he would sign his emails in Polish. But what it meant was everything is possible. And this was actually a fast food franchise that was franchising a number of different concepts. But he sort of elevated the concept and made everybody kind of think about the possibilities because fast food in that part of the world was really about allowing people to get jobs and delivering hope as communism was kind of ending in Eastern Europe and in that part of the world. So, RJ, it's really hard to answer that question. Okay, last question. Can you tell us about a book that you read that has had a profound impact on your life? Yeah, it's not a book, but it's funny that you, you mentioned Amazon. It is, you know, there are a lot of books that I've read that have had impacts on my life, but, and it's something that I think I've learned a little bit later in my career, because we are, you know, I started more in the financial world and as financial investors, we tend to look a lot at the spreadsheet, but this kind of philosophy, when you read through what he was doing, particularly in the early days when no one was sure it was going to work in the financial model, but maybe it was a little bit less proven, this notion of maniacal focus on customer and product, it's really resonated and had a big impact for me in my career. Excellent. Well, we're just about up on time, Amr. I want to thank you again for taking the time. And I know our audience will find this very insightful. Well, thank you. 